0: Engineering is a dangerous sport where a 20% chance of rain means you'd be better off planning a picnic. The hosts of this podcast will soon be replaced with ChatGPT as they are more artificial than intelligent. This podcast will be nominated for the 2024 People's Choice Award in the fiction category as soon as we submit the paperwork. And now, the unqualified hosts of the Canyon Tech podcast, Wayne and Vin. Welcome back, everyone. This is Wayne. Vin, say hello. Hello. How do you say hello in Thai, Vin?
1: So what, D-Cop?
0: Ah, great. You and I had a great time. You were there for multiple weeks because that is your homeland, as we know. I went and visited a wonderful country. Nobody cares, Wayne. Oh, you're right. All right, let's get back to canyoneering. We're going to talk about things that we do now that we're more experienced in canyoneering that we didn't do before when we were newer in canyoneering. Most people, including us, will learn the basics of canyoneering through a level one class. We do suggest you take a class when you're first getting into the sport, but it does not mean... After you've graduated that class and you know how to repel safely and get yourself down and maybe even do a little bit of self-rescue, it doesn't mean that you're great at all aspects of canyoneering. This falls into the category of you don't know what you don't know until you're more experienced. So today we're going to discuss some of the things that we left to more experienced people when we first started canyoneering. Also, I want to talk some about what we started to do, which is watching others. Vin, give me a little bit of thoughts on when we were younger and fresher in the sport and trying to understand why people did things the way
1: they did. I think that's how people generally start right you're going with more experienced people that have their own gear and you're learning from them which which makes sense but there is something to the effect of what's called like a halo effect where you're trusting them to do the right things and i think over time what's happened with at least me is although i want to trust in general the people that i'm going with because we've done some careful selection but I'm much more careful about verifying everything that's happening.
0: Yes, and I'd add that I think over time I realized that the people I was going with that were more experienced, I assumed they knew everything about canyoneering and I was 100%, as you were saying, trusting them. If there was a core shot, if there had to be a rescue, they knew how to set up a three to one. And that turned out to not be the case. And over time, as you and I both learned, we became more experienced people on the team that were the go-to for some of those kinds of things. And one of the tips that I would suggest for folks as they're we'll call it growing up in the world of canyoneering, even if you're not the one to set a block or to rig a certain way, you might want to ask, especially if they did Did it a different way than you would do it? Why did you do it that way? It's a great way to learn because sometimes it's really six of one and half dozen of the other, and so it really doesn't matter that they rigged it one way versus another. Maybe way you would have done it, but in some cases they have some very good reasons because they're more experienced, and you might want to ask the question let's jump into it. And one of the things that we do now that we didn't do then was planning and leading a canyon. There is a responsibility that you have when you're leading a canyon to make sure that everyone is safe. The key here is it's not just about, I'm going to get a bunch of people together because there's a cool canyon that I saw on Facebook and I want to do it. So let's just get out there and do it because other people that are going with you are going to assume certain things about the planning process, including knowing that you know that what you're doing in preparing that canyon. So let's talk about that. What does that look like, Vin, when you're planning and leading a canyon? And what do people assume that you are doing and bringing together?
1: I think the first thing is we've we've shifted more towards being more intentional about the group, you know, composition. And so you're going to want to have at least the two competent canyoneers, but that changes, right? It changes with, you know, how much beta you have, how many people you have to leave behind, and also the ratio of the like level 2 plus canyoneers on the ACA level versus the newbies that you're you're bringing.
0: And I think that matters too depending on the canyons. The most average canyons, two competent canyoneers will be great. If you're doing heaps, I would not want to have four newbies and two competent canyoneers because they become much less competent if they are hypothermic and you've got some other issues along the way with rope management. So you want to keep that in mind depending on the level of Canyon that you're talking about. Also, you want to make sure that everybody has at least the basic equipment. You and I both have had the experience of people showing up and not having a descender. Maybe they have a harness that they borrowed. They don't have a helmet. So there's some of those kinds of things where Again, if they're new, you want to make sure as the leader that they have something or they're borrowing it from you or someone else. And then there's also the rope management. So you've got two to three times the longest wrap. Maybe there's a pull cord in there. Maybe there's some Dyneema cord with a fiddle and making sure as you're planning leading the canyon that you are either assigning or requesting or bringing enough rope for that group. What are some other things that the leader is going to want to make sure that they are planning
1: on and have I think my relationship with beta has changed over time. Ideally, you're looking for like somebody who's done the canyon before and then maybe somebody who has tracks. As we've gone through these years, like a lot of time, the person who has done it, and sometimes it's me, right? Like I've done this canyon five times and I'm at this place. I'm like, I don't know where to go. It doesn't look familiar to me. And the same thing with having tracks, like one person having it is great, but it has failed so many times that we're much more cautious about having it on multiple devices. The other aspect too is the actual conditions that are happening right now because those conditions really change how that canyon is going to be that day so I think we're much more intentional about like the driving conditions to get there how cold the water is going to be pothole conditions anchor conditions and all of this is usually coming off of like recent trip reports and weather reports
0: yeah that's excellent and and on the pothole conditions specifically how full or empty those potholes are because it can make it much easier to get through a pothole canyon when you can just swim out the other side and in some cases just knowing that it's dry and you're not going to worry as much about the coldness of being in water all day can help as well. So that makes a huge difference in terms of the planning. Uh, the other, the last thing I'd, I'd mention as part of the plan is whether the weather is clear. So at this time of year, You get monsoon season, so there might be a 20% chance of rain somewhere in a particular area, even though it's been sunny for months on end. And so that's one thing you're going to want to check the day before and before you get into that canyon that next morning to make sure that everything is still clear. So the next major topic we're going to talk about is the anchor. And so there's a lot of different ways to assess the anchor and the webbing. I admit when I was newer to canyoneering that I just assumed, hey, somebody else got down this anchor probably not that long ago. It didn't break for them. What's the chance it's going to break for me? Really bad assumption. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that could have happened between the last group going through and me getting through Vin.
1: I mean, I think one of the obvious ones is that they didn't inspect it either. And so we've just been all going on this, you know, anchor that is slowly degrading over time. One of the things that I I look for now is when I was starting off, I think that I would look at an anchor and say, hey, it looks great. The webbing looks great from where I see it but as we've been better about inspecting it sometimes you'll look behind it and you're like holy cow like this is horrible behind the rock and I think that happens from whether it is you know different sun conditions or it's getting nicked by the rock the webbing anchors themselves can be in different conditions based on like where they are around the rock I think this is probably one of the big reasons that like you know deadmans have fallen out of favor just because you know the part that you see looks great but there's no way to physically inspect the part that's underground
0: we look at the entire length of the webbing now make sure that it's supple and it's not nicked whether there's abrasion other things i'd say is even if it's bolts bolt can loosen over time and i have pulled a bolt out of the rock just by doing a basic inspection so that gets to be scary when you do see that happen It's also the reason why we do those little bit of uh, inspections and turn the bolt to see how loose it already is and whether it'll just pull out on its own. Rock cairns are another one that can change over time because in the rainy season, they can be partially washed away or maybe rearranged a little bit. So while they were, pardon the pun, rock solid on the previous group coming through, it could be in a different configuration now and not quite as strong. There's other things like anchors where you're on trees or bushes or arches. And again, you don't know whether those were shock loaded the last time around when we're going off of things that are a bit sketchy or smaller than we would like. We do the soft starts, but I've seen newbies where you tell them to soft start and they just clumsily go over the edge. What are some of the other items that we've seen where we have to be careful and we have to inspect?
1: The one that I look for a lot is just human error. You know, there's no real test to be able to go into a canyon. Somebody goes in and they're going to build a new anchor, which, you know, they're trying to do a good thing, but the knots are wrong. They're using overhand knots instead of water knots.
0: The summary, I guess, is just because the previous group didn't have an accident or die doesn't mean that you won't. And so you have to go into that with the mentality of, what are the failure points, is there redundancy? All of that makes a huge difference as you're approaching it and part of the experience process. The next item, setting up a rope. So you and I used to just wait for someone more experienced to set up the rappel and then go down. They generally would go down first and last and the more experienced people would and then pull the rope and everything was magically great. And All we had to do was worry about ourselves as we went down. But the setting up the rope, even the basics on doing it right, takes a little bit of time and practice, but each person has a responsibility and tell
1: me, Vin, about what that looks like. The responsibility is that you're really, you're checking to make sure it's done correctly. How do clove hitches look? How do MMO stone knots, figure eights? You have to be able to take a look and to test it to make sure that it's correct. Stone knot's a great one, which
0: it's not used very often. There's specific reasons for doing that. And if you're clipping a stone knot, if you don't clip one of the strands above, it is not safe. So there's things like that where you can't just go, what is that? They say a stone knot. You go, okay, sounds good. You need to make sure you understand what those knots look like and how it's done correctly. Clove hitch is another one. Once you've learned what a good clove hitch looks like, you will not mistake it for a munter. But if they don't know exactly what they're doing and they put a munter on, you're going to have slippage on that block that you do not want. Everybody's responsibility over time is making sure they know what those things look like. So even if they didn't rig it, they can visually inspect it, hopefully within a few seconds. So there's another part of this is really deciding whether to rig releasable or static. The one school of thought is you always rig releasable. Then flowing water, you want to make sure that you do always rig releasable because there's a a time constraint in terms of if somebody's pinned under a waterfall and getting waterboarded. Talk to me a little bit about other things like using a toggle versus a pull
1: cord. Over time, I think our usage of toggles has increased pull cords feel really good you're still going off the existing block that you created and you know it's solid a toggle doesn't always feel great in the beginning but there are advantages to it damage to the rock or to the trees and we have more energy to be able to consider things like that and like the leave no trace principles but also a lot of times it's because of the pull the pull itself is going to be difficult the toggle is going to solve a lot of that
0: part of that overall experience process is using the toggle how to use it how to use it safely the last person's gonna be more unprotected and you don't want it to pop out because it's banging into a rock up top. So all of that is part of that that process. Again, experience that you're gonna wanna have over time. Another item is, is how to rig in a special way. We briefly mentioned a minute ago, the stone knot. If you don't know that the end of the rope is down, So you can put a stone knot in, have somebody repel because you know that you have enough rope, you just can't see the bottom and whether both sides are down or not. Also, if you want to move people quicker through a canyon, so now you're isolating strands with a stone knot and then people can, if they're not repelling both at the same time, at least one's getting on the unused strand while the other one is going down. It's an efficiency thing that you learn over time and the importance of that. So the next item is talking about going first. We'll also talk in a minute about going last. So usually your more experienced people are doing this, which is why you want at least two solid canyoneers as part of your team. Talk to me, Vin, about some of the potential issues on going first.
1: One of the primary things that's going to be a little bit more risky is that there's no fireman's belay. So if something goes wrong, there's a higher potential for a longer fall. That's why we use VT prusics. But also, we are better about whether or not it's going to hold the condition of the VT and whether or not it's going to affect us as we're going down this beginning part, because it could be slippery. It could be a harder start and the VT could stick.
0: If you do go down first, obviously you're going to want to warn others about any potential hazards and especially if there is a difficult start and you do something specific to try to mitigate that. And it did not work well. So I've told people before not to do what I just did. Also, there's issues potentially with you throw the rope bag over and the rope bag is stuck somewhere. So it's uh, in a crack or in a tree or a bush. And so you're going to have to stop to fix that before you get to the problem because you don't want the rope and the rope bag in a tree basically belaying you as you're trying to get to the ground Or if the rope is too short, I know I have been bitten by this before where I look over the edge, the rope bag is safely on the ground, but the rope I found out came away from the bag. And so the rope is too short. I have gotten much better over time in making sure I look for the end of the rope, not where the rope bag is. And then other times, especially if it's a newer rope, etc., you might have a knot or a twist in the rope. But As you're going down first, you're the one has to watch out for and be careful of these knots and twists. So those are the kinds of issues that the first person going down, you want them to be more experienced. You want to be more experienced and watch for those things and to correct them before the rest of the team goes down. So let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Today's podcast is brought to you by Wayward Canyoneering Guides. Are you tired of being told the optimal way to rig a rappel? Do you like explaining to concerned fellow canyoneers the unusual system you just rigged because you like to be different? Then the Wayward Canyoneering Guides are for you. We focus on unusual knots, bends, and anchor systems that probably won't fail, but definitely are different. Is a strong figure-eight bend too pedestrian for you? Wayward guides will suggest a double overhand bend that just might roll to failure. But hey, you're a wayward individual, which is more important than safety. Want to rig an American death triangle just because it sounds metal? Wayward Guides will explain how you can do things experts dismissed long ago just because a few people died. Wayward Canyoneering Guides, because everyone is an expert.
1: What do you think of that, Vin? That sounds great. I want one of those.
0: The next thing we want to discuss is going last, which again, one of your more experienced people should be doing this. Let's talk about potential issues here, Vin.
1: Going last is kind of unique in the sense that nobody's watching you. There's nobody else that can verify what you're doing, whether you locked your carabiners off. And then specific to that situation, if you're going off of a block, making sure that you took the backup off and you're on the right side of the rope. So like one of the things that I do is I will get on the rappel side and be able to test it before I take the backup off. The other issue is one of the things that you're doing last is that you're paying a lot of attention to the pull how the rope is going to sit, particularly how it's going to act when you start pulling it, whether it's going to be going into a crevice, whether there's chicken heads that get get stuck around. Those are all unique to being last.
0: One other thing is making sure that there are no twists that are either being introduced through your device, or sometimes when the webbing is single threaded, when you weight it, it'll just flip that repeat over a few times and it'll put twists into the rope itself. So you're imagining either going down double or you've got a pull cord. So there's a couple different ways you can mitigate that when you're going last. One is you can use a device that allows you to go down double while keeping the two ropes separate. The scarabs that we use and ats or a totem in jester mode there's no way for twists to go through those devices when you've got them set up that way so that's a good way to do it another trick is if you take your tether and you just clip a beaner in to one of the two rope halves so then even if you have twists go through say your critter because you're repelling down double you will keep the two halves separate From twisting because that beaner won't allow those twists to go into the rope as you go down that's a great thing when you're going last is to make sure that you're not introducing twists that'll ruin your pull or stick a rope let's now talk about when you're more experienced carrying specific gear that help us stay safe in
1: Yeah, I mean, over time it has changed a little bit. I mean, a tether is a tether, right? And so I think I started off with like a double length sling and then moved to like a chain reactor. Uh, And now I really am pretty happy with like the adjustable ones. Uh, They do offer a ton of flexibility.
0: Yes. And if you're trying to save a few dollars, you can create a Purcell Pressic. look online, find ways to tie some cord. And that way you'll have a little bit of the best of both worlds where you can adjust length of your Purcell Presic. So you Don't have a bunch of slack in the system that would shock load should you fall. When you're talking about the VT Prusik, we just described when you go down first or if you have to pass a knot, the usefulness of that. Also in rescue kinds of situations, you were mentioning the sling and uh, doing a self-rescue with that with a Clem Heist. So if your shirt gets caught or you have some other jam in the system... Having plenty of carabiners, you and I carry about six. So usually newbies might have at most two extra. And so if you're going to do a rescue, it's going to take a fair number of beaners, especially if you're the one to do a lot of the setups, you're going to want to make sure you've got enough. What are a few other things that we carry with us now that we didn't used to, Ben?
1: You know, I think the one that I really like is like the seven mil cordage, right? Like 20 feet of that has really saved me in a lot of ways a lot of times like we're a little bit short and so we were able to extend the anchor and maybe leave it behind but then i also used like the seven mil for like the rigging up three to ones for rescues or conversions
0: i added a toggle so fiddlestick and over time a smooth operator instead with the three millimeter dyneema cord and i carry that with me all the time now even if we don't really need it the good thing about that three millimeter cord is it's about a 1600 pound test so it's got a lot of strength i can use it as a pull cord just take the toggle off so it gives me options Also, I'm usually using it with the toggle. And so as you mentioned before, We do that more and more. So it just saves us, instead of having three times the length of the longest rappel, usually we'll carry two. So it saves a lot of weight for the team in order to be able to, at the expense of of one of the ropes. The other thing that we've been doing more is, in terms of rescue, is making sure we've got enough rope up top for either a lower or a rescue. And so oftentimes that'll just be half the rope. If you've got a 100-foot rappel, you've got 200 feet of rope, you throw out 100 feet and then you keep another 100 up top. So now I can lower them if I need to, or I can effectuate a lift by sending down that other second rope or the other half of the rope. We used to just, for efficiency purposes, push rope ahead as much as possible, but the problem is you don't have any good options. If somebody gets stuck and you only have you know, five feet of tail, it's not ideal, and so we've been doing much better at making sure that we've got rope up top to effectuate that rescue if needed. Talk a little bit about other safety issues, Vin, that we take a look at now that we didn't when we started.
1: If you look at like the rated lifespan for a lot of the soft goods that we use, like you're talking in the span of five years, potentially 10 years for some of this stuff. And so it's kind of an easy thing that when you start, all your stuff is kind of new. And so you're not needing to check it very often. But all of a sudden, we're three, four years in, and I look at my harness, I'm like, holy cow, like there are some like serious nicks that I need to either replace or get a new harness. I think it is a better habit now that I have developed of consciously checking both the soft parts of my harness the rope for like sheath wear and core shots because we are now at a point where our our gear is aging out to some extent that's true of the descenders too but I i feel like we burn through those a lot more often so we are better about checking those and we see them all the time they're right in front of us
0: and the other item that I have replaced a few times is the VT Prusik, and you can wash them and get some of the dirt out. They're not as effective. Once they've been down and gotten hot a number of times, they get a little bit slicker, and then there's dirt that you're not going to be able to get out over time. They usually don't fray out and have issues that look like they're going to bust apart. It's usually that they just don't catch anymore. So let's talk a little bit about additional gear that a newbie doesn't carry, but it's very important for rescue purposes, emergency purposes that we carry with us, Finn.
1: Uh, the first one that comes to mind is ascenders. You know, if you look at the evolution of how I incorporated ascenders, at first I didn't have any, I didn't know how to use them. And then I got some and they stayed in my bag, but now they're on my hip right? Because they are extremely useful. And a lot of times when I need them, they need to be accessible. Like if I'm stuck on rope. Now, the primary use case is probably going to be going up to get a rope unstuck. But sometimes it is a little bit more time sensitive. It is significantly easier to be able to reach them than rather have to take off your bag on rope when you're stuck, potentially free hanging to be able to solve your problem.
0: And you can use those same devices when you're creating a system for lift. You're bringing somebody all the way up to the top of that rappel. So you're going to want to have something like a progress capture pulley, the spock or traction, but you'll also want to add a prussic minding pulley. Yes, you can run rope around a rounded carabiner, our typical HMS pair carabiners are rounded enough to make that work, you're just reducing efficiency. So having at least someone in the group with that Prusik mining pulley can be useful as well. And then you spoke a little bit about that 25 to 30 feet of say six or ideally seven millimeter cordage, because that will allow you to combine it with your progress capture pulley, your Prusik mining pulley where needed, and you can create this mechanical advantage. So your three to one, five to one, six to one, or you could use it as a tether line. So you can get to an edge, look over, and maybe communicate with someone who's stuck on ropes. So you can figure out what to do with there. What's another piece of equipment that we found super helpful being in the
1: backcountry? I think the the Garmin satellite communicators are just so handy. It's kind of a big purchase price, which is, I think, why I held off on for so long. But it really was that one time when all I needed to say was, I'm running late. And it would have just made things a lot easier. Nobody's panicked. Nobody's trying to organize a rescue. And so having that peace of mind is definitely worth it. Most of the time, I'm using it to talk to my wife. But... It's there for those times I do need it.
0: And the newer cell phones will talk to the satellites and 911 will often also boost a signal in order to get a text through. And if you can't do a phone call in the canyon. So that's another device that is good to carry with you beyond just having it for your GPX tracks to make sure that you're not getting lost. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to everybody. We will talk to you again next time.